We're going to continue through our study of the gospel account according to Luke. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have not yet, go turn to Luke chapter 1. We have seen so much already within Luke. We have seen the incredible build-up to the birth of Christ, right? We see the, an- the angels appearing to Zechariah, to Mary, later to the shepherds. And I've attempted, and I will continue to attempt, to show how the, the Old Testament, the record of God's people, also builds up to and points to Christ. We've seen Jesus as a child amaze the teachers in the temple. We've seen uh, this man, this man of a man, John the Baptist, come on the scene. We've seen him declaring that a mighty one is to come. He denounces the Pharisees. He calls for repentance, and he continues to speak of a near judgment. We've seen Jesus, the, the rightful heir of the throne of David, We have seen him victorious over Satan in the wilderness. We have seen him heal many. We have seen him proclaim a time spoken of of old that it has come. We have seen him speak what it means to follow him. He talks a lot about love. And then he ends it with saying, come, yes, come, but also you need to obey. And this morning, our passage comes after the centurion with his marvelous faith. And then the widow and her son that was raised from the dead. And if you've got your hand there at Luke chapter 1, if you remember the first four verses, I believe it is, we see that Luke has been writing specifically to a man named Theophilus. And he says, within that kind of the, the preface that Luke has there, he says that Luke is writing so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. And... Uh, Surely this means the same for us this morning, that Luke has written this so that we can have assurance of the truth of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And that connects very well with our passage this morning, which is about doubt. Luke writes so that Theophilus can have certainty, assurance. And here in our passage, he writes an account about a believer that doubts. So I've titled this message, when the believer doubts, that's exactly what we see. And specifically, we see it with John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the man who literally, from the time he was in his mother's womb, his life has been interwoven with Christ. We see that within Luke. It goes back and forth, back and forth. They're together, back and forth. He doubts. And so this morning, as we look at doubt, I want to limit it to believers believers doubting one because that's exactly what we see in this passage is john the baptist he doubts but also number two because scripture tells us why the unbeliever doubts it is not because there's not enough evidence for god scripture says the unbeliever doubts the non-believer because one satan has blinded their eyes to the truth second Corinthians 4 4 and two they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness romans 1 18 and so in other words they love their sin They're simultaneously blinded to the truth by Satan while also pushing down, suppressing the truth with their sin because they love their sin. I remember 10 years ago, almost to the day, roughly, I sat in the kitchen in uh, the church that my family was attending and I was with my youth pastor. We were going through a a book about God and I remember telling him, you know, I'm I'm just not sure. I just don't, there's not enough here to pull me to that side. 
And then he said this, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Alex, I think this uncertainty is just an excuse that you're not surrendering to God. And it's exactly what Paul says in Romans 1. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We know that God exists. Paul says that clearly in the next verse in Romans 19. We are suppressing the truth. So that is why this morning we're looking at or limiting doubt to the believer. Because we know why the unbeliever does not believe that they doubt. Scripture tells us. But we see in our passage, John doubts. And when I say doubts, I'm not only referring to doubting God's existence. That's for sure included. But I'm saying in all things concerning God is when we doubt God's disposition towards you. When we doubt that he actually loves you and that he's not just an angry father who wants your performance and just makes demands. It's when we doubt that God actually cares about the small details in your life, when we doubt that he will actually provide in the situation, when we doubt that he will actually work anything good from the circumstance, when we doubt that your life and your role matters, when you doubt that God is with you and he has not forsaken you, when we doubt that he has forgiven us of that one sin that just continues to stay in our minds, and when we doubt the seriousness of sin. I'm referring to that when we doubt And as we talk about this this morning, I want us to keep in mind the instruction of Jude. Uh, Jude 1.22, he writes this, And have mercy on those who doubt. And so my prayer this morning is that you and me will find mercy as we work through and struggle with our doubts. So open up to chapter 7. If you're back at Luke chapter 1, go to chapter 7. The first part we see here is literally that, the believer doubts. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, exactly what AJ said, all the things that have been occurring here. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So remember, at this time, John's in prison. If you recall, back in, I think, uh, chapter 3 or chapter 4, Herod, the leader, had broken the law. John the Baptist was rebuking him for breaking God's law. A secular ruler, John the Baptist was rebuking him. So Herod locks him up in prison to, to quiet him up. And then while in prison, John sends these two disciples to Jesus. And he tells them to ask, Are you the one who is to come? So just a little background. What we hear from this question is that the Jews were expecting someone to come, right? They're expecting someone. And this is clear in John, the account of John. We see such statements as this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, and that referring to the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The Samaritan woman at the well said something very similar about one to come. So they were, refer- they were looking for someone to come, just like John the Baptist, expecting one to come. And why were they expecting this? It's because Scripture tells that there will be one coming. Daniel 7, which one uh, passage I've referred to often as Luke kind of connects to it, says this, I saw... In the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and it was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, 
which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One to come like a son of man. And then even in relation with John the Baptist, his role, there was the expectation of one to come after him. Malachi 3, Behold, I send my messenger, referring to John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant is whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so there's this expectation of one to come. And then there's John the Baptist. Are you the one that is coming? And who is it they expected? It's the Messiah. Last week, I, I brought up when Lazarus was dead and Jesus was coming to kind of the funeral as it was going on. And Martha, he talks to Martha, tells her, I'm the resurrection and the life. And this is how Martha responds. She says this, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, which is the Greek for Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And so you see this expectation, the Messiah is coming. And so in essence, John the Baptist sends these two followers of his to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah, the one who is coming into the world? Are you him? Or shall we look for another? John the Baptist, the one in Luke 3 that's proclaiming of the one to come, the one to come, the one to come. He now asks if Jesus was the one that he's referring to. And this question reveals two things about John the Baptist. Number one, he has some sort of doubts. He's struggling with something with Jesus, struggling to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And number two, we see that John the Baptist is a real person. His humanity is coming through loud and clear, and we see this real human element of questioning if he got things right. I mean, try to imagine John the Baptist. You're in prison thinking, had I gotten things wrong? It is not unusual for the strongest of believers to go through uh, these doubts and these questioning. John the Baptist, who some refer to as the man of iron himself, he doubted. And John the Baptist is not alone among the people of God. Adam and Eve, they doubted God's word and the command to not eat of this tree. And as a result of their doubt, all of us have been flung into sin and death. Abraham and Sarah doubted God. And if you remember, they laughed about the promise of having a son. They doubted and then they tried to manipulate in their own means through Hagar, which resulted in quite the bit of issues and death after that. Jacob and Rebekah doubted God's promise that Esau, the older, would serve the younger Jacob. And so they manipulated Isaac to get the blessing. Moses doubted God, even after God promises, I will be with you. I've made your mouth. He doubts God. And so God brings in Aaron to help out. Israel doubted. They're at the edge of the promised land. They doubt God that they can actually take it. And as a result, for 40 years, they're in the wilderness. Except for one generation, they all die. Naomi doubted God's goodness as she was going through a hardship. And when she comes home, they're like, it's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. Then you've got the prophet Elijah, this great prophet. He doubted God, and he asked God to kill him because he doubted. 
Then you've got the Psalms that AJ says he's been reading a ton, which is just filled with questions. Where is God in this? Has his love finally ceased? Where is he at? You've got Zechariah, Luke 1, questioningly or doubtingly as he asks, how can I have a son? And then probably most famous, Thomas doubts, as well with all the apostles, but he doubts that Jesus could have been raised from the dead. And so there's many, many more examples of God's people doubting God. The heroes of our faith, they've all had seasons of doubt. And so we've got John the Baptist. He's in prison, experiencing quite the, the personal tragedy, hardship. Uh, most likely at this time, he's probably in prison for at least a year. He's in prison for a year. Like John, when we're faced with hardship, sickness, death, loss of income, uh, not knowing the future, the unknown in some situation, doubts can start to creep in. Is this a sign that God has given up on me? Or that I have finally done too much wrong and he's forsaken me? Could God love me if he brought this in my life? On top of this, factoring to John's doubt may have been the popular misconception at that time of the ruling Messiah without the suffering servant we see in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. At that time, it seems clear that the the Jews totally did not think about the suffering servant that's been prophesied about the Messiah. And so they had a misconception that that was missing. And that could have been factoring into John's doubt. And so in the same way, when we have misconceptions or uh, mis-expectations, we can start creeping in doubt that, This is what I expected God to do, and he didn't do it. And don't think that Satan was not just raging against him with spiritual warfare, just as Satan did with Eve in the garden, led her to doubt, saying, did God really say? And so we see that believers doubt. Believers go through these seasons. Sometimes it's just here and there, things come up. Or it's like a season that we're just plagued by doubts and questions. And we see that with John the Baptist as he's in prison. And then Jesus responds to him. And we see that Jesus points to, the answer for doubt was to point to the word of God. Verse 21, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, referred to the two disciples of John that came to him, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And so it's interesting that between the question of the disciples of John and Jesus' answer, Luke slips in this, this, I should say slips, but he, he adds in this verse describing what's going on. He says, in that hour, people are being healed of diseases and plagues. This is going on, possibly, as the two disciples of John come up to Jesus, possibly this is going on, and they see that. They could possibly see Jesus healing people at this time. So it's almost as if to solidify the foundation of Jesus' response. And so Jesus answers John's question. And remember, this is coming right after Jesus raised the widow's son from the dead, the compassion of Christ. The high priest who can sympathize with all your weaknesses because he's experienced it, he deals gently with the doubts of John. He deals gently. And Jesus says, go and tell what you have seen and heard. 
and all these things are going on, these healings of all diseases are going on before the, the two disciples of John. And then Jesus makes it very explicit, if that wasn't enough, the connections of him, what he's doing, with the promises of the Messiah. He points to the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. And that might not mean much for us, but listen to this. This is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35. He writes, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have, have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And that's exactly what Jesus is referring to. This, what you've been prophesied, that's what's going on here, Jesus says. And how incredible. Isaiah prophesied this by the Spirit of God hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth comes and fulfills them. Jesus is making it clear to Theophilus and to us this morning that Jesus is that one who was to come. And he's shown it to John. He is the one who brings salvation for all those who believe. He's the one, the, the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the one who reigns right now. He's the one who's coming to judge the living and the dead. So take comfort. He is who he says he is. And God accomplishes what he said, even hundreds of years past that time. And one thing I want to mention with this is that miracles kind of showed that there was a special time going on. In the Bible, we see a lot of miracles, but there are only, um, a, a, the majority of the miracles that's worked through specific people happens in kind of main clumps. One is kind of Moses and the Exodus. Through Moses, God did a lot of miracles. And there's other miracles that go on, but through specific people, it's kind of a jump and it gets to Elijah and Elisha where God works many miracles through them. And then it kind of jumps after that. There's other miracles, but in terms of clumps of God working through certain people, it then jumps to Jesus and the apostles, where there's a lot of miracles going on there. And so these signs to John the Baptist that Jesus is sending back with the two disciples, not only is he saying, look, what's been prophesied about, about the one to come, that is happening because I am the one who's here, who's coming into the world. Not only that, these miracles are showing that there's something special going on. There's this new age that has come. And then Jesus says, after those he points to, he says something very familiar. He says this, the poor have good news preached to them. The poor have good news preached to them. And if you recall, Jesus said something very similar at the beginning of his public ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth. He read specifically from Isaiah in chapter 61, which said this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn. And Jesus, if you recall, he said, he said these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is who the passage refers to. The good news is preached to the poor, which means Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon them. He's preaching good news of the kingdom of God. He has come to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open up the prison to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, 
the vengeance of God, and to comfort all who mourn. Jesus is saying all that to the two disciples of John to send back to John. So John brings his doubts to Jesus, and Jesus leads John to the Word of God. And so this morning, if you have doubts, bring them to the Word of God. The literal Word of God and the incarnate Word of God. Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, as John the Apostle refers to him as, he is compassionate, he sympathizes with your weaknesses, and he is gentle, and he will comfort you. And the literal Word of God is the means the Spirit of God uses to grow, to grow your faith. Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. So if you hear and you have doubts, questions that are coming up concerning God, and yet you desire, I, you desire to get through it. You don't want to be questioning, but you want this, you want to increase in faith. Take comfort, because that desire itself is the beginnings of God's work in you. It's when you don't have that desire when you should be concerned and question where you're at. So if you're here and you have doubts and you have questions, but you have this desire to persevere through it and you want to learn more and you want to resolve them, do it with confidence that God is working in you to grow your trust in Him. A proverb that uh, many of us may be familiar with goes like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. When all the thoughts and the emotions start swirling in our heads, added in that is, is, is doubting and discouragement and condemnation and shame come on us, don't lean on that. But lead, lean on God alone. Trust in the Lord all, and with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I love this, this passage, or I should say this, this paragraph from the commentary. Uh, it's uh, from the pastor, John MacArthur. I absolutely love this quote. He says this. Some Christians simply doubt God that he will give them what they need and rationalize their doubt in countless ways. They believe they are undeserving, which is true but irrelevant as God is generous and gracious. Or they may think their needs are not worthy of God's attention, which is also true, but irrelevant. For in His boundless grace and love, He sovereignly chooses to take greater interest in things that in the grand scheme of things seem utterly insignificant. So He's saying that voice in your head that tells you throughout the day, you do not deserve for God to comfort you, for God to work all things for good in this circumstance, that voice is absolutely true. Absolutely true. But it's irrelevant because it's not based on us. But God is gracious and He's generous. And because of Jesus Christ, He is gracious and generous to us. And that voice that tells you that you're insignificant in these small details, what, what is that compared to all the nations and the persecution, all everything that's going on in the world? What is that? You don't deserve God's attention. That's true. You don't, I don't. But that's irrelevant because God loves you and you're his child because of Jesus Christ. And so praise God for Jesus Christ that this is so true. Yep, I don't deserve this. But because of Jesus Christ, we do deserve it because it's based on what he has done.
Centuries ago, a man named William Perkins, he said this. He said, a hand with cerebral palsy is able to receive a gift, though not as strong as another. So too, in the midst of doubts, stretch out your hand. And though not as strongly as in other seasons, but stretch it out and receive the word of God. So let Jesus and his word reconcile your doubts. So Jesus sends John to God's word. And then Jesus ends it with this, which is a little uh, peculiar. Jesus ends by declaring that those who are not offended by him are blessed. Verse 23, and blessed. So keep this in mind, the context of what's going on. He says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The literal word here for offended is a picture of someone tripping. Not to be tripped up by me. Not to be offended by me. Uh, We see a very similar vein of thought in uh, Isaiah 8. Isaiah says this, But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many, he's referring to God, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Very similar to exactly what Jesus is saying. So even with this, blessed is the one who is not offended, does not stumble and fall and breaks, nor ends up snared or taken. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me, Jesus says. And Jesus says some very offensive things and offends many people. John 6, I referred to this before. There's a huge crowd that Jesus is speaking to. And he says some very tough things. And how does the crowd respond? Uh, John tells us, verse 60, When many of his disciples heard, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And then John notes that many who are following left. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And then almost to heighten this situation, Jesus sees these massive crowd leaving, and he turns to the twelve and says, are you going to leave too? Go on. And that's when Peter says, no, where else are the words of the living God? But we see this offense, that Jesus offends. In Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and his disciples afterwards come to Jesus and says, you do understand that you're offending them. Jesus responds by continuing to rebuke the Pharisees. And then he, that's when you get the, the nice terms such as blind guides and all the other good stuff that he says about the Pharisees. In Luke 11, which is coming down the road for us, Jesus pronounces judgment on the Pharisees. And then the scribes come to Jesus afterwards and says, you offend us too by saying these things. How does Jesus respond? He continues with the rebuke, but now he directs it at the scribes. So the point is, is that people will be offended by Jesus. And this is not something that Jesus tries to avoid. His goal is not to avoid offending people, but to share the truth that we all desperately need to hear. And with this statement, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, there's this assumption 
that many, if not the majority, will be offended by him. So if the Jesus that you believe and share does not offend anyone, then you may not be sharing the biblical Jesus. Yes, Jesus is gracious, he's gentle and forgiven, and praise God because we worship him so much for the gospel and the forgiveness he has, but we cannot neglect the truth that Jesus is absolutely exclusive. There's no room for any other God, no philosophy. Jesus is king and he shares his glory with no one else. He hates sin and and he's coming to judge sin. He speaks of hell and judgment very often. He pronounces judgment on those refusing to repent. He commands us to obey his word and he is Lord of all, even over those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And this truth offends. And Jesus says, blessed are you who is not offended. But bring it back. What does this have to do with doubting? (laughs) What's going on here? Why does Jesus bring this up? I think it is because we as believers, we get offended by Jesus and his word a lot. We all still have the old nature within us. We still have the sinful nature that just lashes out with anger when the Holy Spirit exposes certain sin in our life, right? I can't be the only one. Listen to this, Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and touch of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Does no one else almost recoil back in fear? Like, oh my, this is not good. And many times when the Spirit exposes the sin in our lives, we take offense. We're offended by this. And certain doubts can creep in. And this is only accentuated by the world that's constantly trying to press us into its mold and they throw accusations like, it is so unloving for you to hate this sin or you're such a bigot and closed-minded and tolerant because you say Jesus is the only way. And then all just mixes and we have a temptation to stumble, to doubt because we start thinking, well, are they right? Is Jesus really exclusive? Is he really the only way? Am I a bigot? Am I a hater? So Jesus says, bless the one who's not offended by me. And not just once, but blessed is the one who continues not to be offended by me. One pastor in church history has said this, Christ intended to remind them that he who would adhere firmly and steadfastly to the faith of the gospel must encounter offenses, which will tend to interrupt the progress of faith. This is said by way of anticipation to fortify us against offenses. The first lesson, therefore, to be learned is that we must Contend with offenses if we would continue in the faith of Christ. They will come. There will be temptations that come where we can stumble. But we must contend with it. We must continue to bring it to the Word of God and the incarnate Word of God, Jesus. The flaming arrows shot by the enemy of our soul will darken the sky as they come at us, and they will come unceasingly. But it is the shield of faith that will extinguish it the shield of faith in God's word and in the living word of God. It's like Peter, who's walking on the water, right, towards Christ. 
And he starts sinking because he starts looking at the wind and the waves. And in the same way, we must continue to look to Christ to not trip or stumble or be offended by the waves or things that come up. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. When the believer doubts, take courage because God uses these times of doubt and questioning to further strengthen your conviction and trust. So how did it end with John the Baptist? If you recall, eventually Herod's wife works it out where John's beheaded in prison. But John rose above these offenses and these doubts. He was not offended by Christ, but he continued in the, in the faith, even in the face of execution. And so the call we see here is not, don't ever doubt. That's not what's being said, but rather the doubts and questions that arise Take them to Christ in his word. That is where we'll be strengthened in the faith. Rise above and grab hold of Christ through the midst of the doubts because he has already been reaching through and holding on to you. Pray with me. Father, Lord, you, you know our hearts. You know the, the thoughts. You know the things that we question throughout the day, during the week, Lord, with our work, our family, um, things going on, God, you know everything within us, the turmoil. Lord, thank you for this example of John the Baptist doubting and your, your sympathy and your mercy on him. And Lord, give us this grace, this sympathy and mercy as well. As we work through different doubts and different questions, Lord, give us grace to, to not be offended, to not trip, but to continue in faith in you, Lord. Father, as, as uh, Jude said, help us to have mercy on those that we know, our spouses, our kids, our friends at school, our, uh, our co-workers, our, our church family here, those who are doubting. May we have mercy. May we have mercy as you do, Lord. God, we are ever so thankful for your goodness to us and we do not deserve it at all. And God, how freeing that is. That's not based on our performance, but based on Jesus Christ's performance, which was absolute perfection and we can receive all the benefits by believing in him. And so, Father, thank you. Lord, may you continue to receive our worship of you through this week like a sweet aroma. Father, we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.